Hi everyone, welcome to Design Development brought to you by H&O Structural Engineering. This is your hub to learn direct from top performers in real estate development, design, and construction. I'm your host, Renz Hayes, co-founder of H&O, lifelong learner, and I'm obsessed with high-powered organizations and the leaders that guide them. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, I can't thank you enough. Let's go. We have a great episode in store for you today. My guest is Scott Steiding. He's the former principal and head of marketing and sales at Morrison Hirschfield. They're a thousand person engineering firm with 25 locations in multiple countries. He's got an interesting career. He worked in expanding cell network when cell phones were just first distributing. If you imagine cell phones created, but we don't necessarily have service yet. How many of us feel that pain from back in the day without service? Scott was a part of, on the forefront of that expansion to bring cell service to new population. I think it's a pretty cool business model and something interesting to learn from there. What does it look like to run sales and marketing for a thousand person firm, the seller doer model? How does marketing support sales? How do you align an entire group that large? If you have over hundreds of people selling your services. And we're going to talk about what's next for Scott. Scott personally is working alongside Smartages to help H&O with our campaign and our next position for marketing sales to fuel growth for us. So we're excited to share his insights. I know we value them and I think you will too. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Scott Steining. Please join me in welcoming Scott Steining. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Renz. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I've, I, for one, have really enjoyed getting to learn more about you. For those listening, Scott and I have been working together on H&O's kind of rebranding, positioning, and a new campaign that we're launching here in the coming months. And I've really gotten to uh, appreciate Scott as a leader and a mind in marketing and sales. And that's going to be the topic of conversation today. We're going to learn through Scott. Scott, if you don't mind, could you give us a little quick intro and, and some of the highlight reels from your journey in marketing and sales? Yeah. And maybe I'll, I will, I was going to say, I'm not sure how far back you want to go. Out of college, between my first and second year teaching, call from my dad asking me for his help. He had a land use planning business. He's like, hey, I can use your help this summer. You know, I mean, sort of hands in the office, that sort of thing. And they were building some new things called cell phone networks. So, you know, that, that set me on a different journey, ended up, you know, working for him that summer and just learned so much. It was fast paced, interesting, and just lived at the office, you know, for that period of time and learned every facet of, you know, real estate, engineering, construction, the equipment, installation, you know what I mean? Kind of all that stuff, even down to the, like the sales and marketing piece, because everything was like in this one building in Des Moines, Iowa, as they launched down the point where like on the day when this cell phone network launched, I was in an inflatable outfit, you know what I mean, costume at the mall in front of the store. <laughs> My dad gave me a lot of leeway and I, yeah, I mean, I just kind of learned everything and I just really enjoyed that, you know, the pace. I, you know, enjoyed design, construction, that sort of stuff. And so then I just kind of worked around the U.S. for a while, spent a few years in, in Europe, sort of building networks. I got married and then we moved to Canada for five years. So my wife wanted to work. That was going to be really challenging to do in Switzerland with that, that sort of the work permit situation. She was able to do that in Switzerland, or I mean in Canada, there for five years. Joined this Morrison Hirschfield's big engineering firm along the way. Was in the Bay Area for a while, Atlanta for the last 17. And I would say, you know, if my career's been almost 30 years, I'd say like the first 15 to 20 was operations, you know, Project development, department management, blah, 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 you know, kind of all that sort of thing. And then before the Great Recession, I got moved to Atlanta with, with Morrison Hirschfeld and asked to set up a sales and marketing team. And our, our president of the firm at the time in the U.S., Ed Gazzola, was forecasting the, well, the economist he was following, was forecasting the drop. And I remember him saying is that the, the recession is going to be really challenging on our, you know, on our industry. Move to Atlanta, take on a different role, help us build a sales and marketing, you know, operation and, you know, we'll weather the, the storm and then maybe move back to the, to the West. This Coast. is 2008 recession time. Frame. 2000. Yeah. And, and we moved in 2006, you know, sort of thing. So on the way we bought a house at the peak, like the month before the peak in, in Atlanta. Really good value. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting is that we, that the whole firm, you know, just kind of rallied top line. I think we outsold, you know, the recession, what we didn't, uh, you know, account for at the time was the number of projects that would cancel, you know, sort of booked business. That's the hardest thing in the AE industry. And I, I think the stat that you were getting to, the one that I was excited to share and I thought was very impressive is you grew revenue 11% through the, the 2008 recession. But it was an all hands on deck, you know, thing. I think that that's, 
the team was great, you know, kind of around at the time, but it was very much a, it was very much a, we're all in this together. And then I'm not sure where, where, where you were in your career, Jim, you know, at that, at that time frame. but you know, when you're on the phone with friends and you're hearing that they've cut staff by 40% or 50% or what have you, Genevieve, like everybody was very motivated to put in a little extra time, make some calls, you know, kind of do all that sort of stuff. So it was fun. You know, sometimes those challenging times really be, bring people together, you know? And and for the audience listening, Morris, Morrison Hirschfield, is that how you say it? Yep. Yep. That's right. Morrison Church. How uh, could you give us a sense of scale? How large is this company? So now, yeah, it's a, it's a mid-sized multidisciplinary employee-owned engineering firm. So about a thousand employees, just under 25 offices across, you know, North America operating, you know, kind of in all the areas, roads, highways, bridges, environmental, civil, water, wastewater, and then on the vertical side, buildings, specialty building, telecom, data centers, building envelope consulting. And this is kind of full envelope services. This is civil, mechanical, structural, like what all, all two or? They're, they're, yep, some architectural, but I would say on the specialty building side, more so than, you know, Morrison Hirschfeld's not, typically they're not designing skyscrapers or they're not designing, you know, multifamily or some of those, you know, type of things. It's a big E little A, you know, firm. When you think about an A and E firm, Morrison Hirschfeld's a big E little A, you know, type of type of firm. So it's uh, architectural that's supporting the engineers. In select sectors, they can yeah. provide those services. Yeah, yeah. Very and they've got great, you know, partnerships with architectural practices. The thing I'm most excited to share with the audience today, particularly in the AE space, I don't think architecture and engineering, let's say their marketing and sales process, I think is very unique to other industries. And I think has a lot to learn from the companies that grow to be a thousand, two thousand. However, at that scale, most architecture and engineering companies, I honestly think the average is less than 10 people, but there's a very small percentage of companies that grow to be even a hundred or 200 people. And for me, I often am recognizing gaps in their marketing strategy or their sales strategy. Could you talk to us about what you see in the engineering of the architecture space, the AE industry from a marketing and sales perspective? What things are companies overlooking? What challenges do they face? Easiest opportunities for them to improve? Yeah, I think your, your, your observation is correct in that if you, you take a look at like the E&R, you know, top 500, you know, firms, there's, there's a narrow group at the top of sort of the, you know, the over billion club, publicly trade, what have you. But then, you know, you're at 140 million at like, I don't know, 120 on the list. You know, like the drop off is significant. And then you get down towards the bottom. There's a lot of small, you know, sort of small firms. It's probably one of the more fragmented industries. You know what I mean? I, it absolutely is. That's that that's out there. So I think that the first thing that I observed when I was kind of figuring out sales, you know, a marketing professional services firm is that none of us went to college and got the degrees that we got to do sales. <laughs> so like none, none of us did that. And so I think as a as a result, it's an end to a means, you know, and and I think that the individuals are historically great problem solvers. You know, they're creative. They like the design. You mean they, they like doing all these other things. And I'll just reinforce that no one loves doing sales is that I would most frequently get feedback on things that I would send out after 4 p.m. So, you know what I mean? Like on any given day. So the individuals come in and it's just natural. Like you're going to gravitate towards the things you're good at and the things you like to do the most. So they're coming in and they're servicing clients and they're doing their project work and designing and that sort of stuff. And then towards the end of the day, oh yeah, shoot, I forgot. I got to do some follow-ups. I got to, you know, do these other. Well said. I, I think that perspective is spot on. You're like people that are getting into architecture, engineering or construction for that matter. They're all joining the industry because they're passionate about it. Yeah. Not because they want to be salespeople for the most part. Well, some of them might, might, might not know. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> There's sales in this? I thought we just, I thought we just designed and build stuff. And, and that's actually that same concept is what makes leadership development and organizational growth so difficult is you get into a business like engineering and you're excited to engineer and then you can get to, you get too much work. So now you have to start hiring people and build a team. And then before you know it, you're getting pulled out of the engineering work and you have to work on the business and work on the team. And it's not doing the thing that you initially started the business to do. I think that's, I think that's right. And so, and so when you, when you started with saying, you know, there's sort of this, this gap between, you know, some of the organizations in terms of size and growth, what have you is, I, I think that there's organizations that recognize that, individuals in leadership positions that recognize 
hey, this is something we can do or this is something we really need help with. And I think that's that's a big deciding factor in terms of how you, you know, you, you and I, I, I've really enjoyed, you know, kind of getting to know you and getting to know your your business and following, you, you know, your pod. But you're, you're a lifelong learner. We've talked about, you know, the, if you're not sure, you'll find a book, read the book, you know, do that sort of stuff. I don't think everybody's willing to do that in the sales and marketing space of ours. And then, and then I think that the other thing that I would put is that I think that the sale is different than it is in other, you know, industries. So some of the, the tactics that you would use to generate eyeballs online or to get click throughs and to do those, you know, types of things, I think in actuality can turn someone off. You know, there's a, there's a group out there that's been pinging me. And I think in some respects, I want to be sold to the same way that I'm required to sale, which is often qualifications based. I mean, let's let's talk about the quality of my work. Let's talk about the output of my work. Let's talk about the my clients are satisfied, some of those sorts of things, not maybe some of the other things that we see in sort of the broader marketing sense. Can can you hook me with a with a line on your ad or on your post or like I'm not worried about your hook yet. I don't even know if you've done this type of work before. Yeah, I'm not I'm not clicking through on the what are the five most important things to think about on my business, on my building envelope, you know, and whether it's leaking or not. You know what I mean? Like so some of whether it's leaking or not, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Like what are they gonna do with that PDF? Three things to think about when hiring a structural engineer. Do you know what I mean? Like that's (laughs) stuff that are and and I think, you know, the other thing too is is our buyers are smart and sophisticated. Sure. As I think about going through, you know, all the books that I've I've read. You know, I, I remember, I think like one of the first ones I was given was Neil Rackham with Spin Selling. But part of that presumption is that you're trying to work with the client to help them figure out what they need. And that and that exists, of course. But I don't know about your experiences. My experience is most of our clients know, Jimmy, kind of what they're looking for in terms of an end game. And the best clients are open to working with design professionals to get to get there. Jimmy, you know I like the road that you're going to take may not follow exactly the path that they're looking for, but if they find the right partner, they can get enhanced value. 100%. Yeah, you got to be I I think that's the the golden ticket in architectural engineering services is you got to figure out like what is it that you can provide that connects to the value for your end user. Like what do they care about and what do you provide that's unique that's going to allow them to get an outsized return for your for your services? Are they better off partnering with you than moving on without you? That's really ultimately what you're communicating. Yeah, and that, and you're absolutely right. And then the, you know, the other thing to remember is like, as opposed to clicking and buying a pair of shoes online or something like that, you know what I mean? Like, like the, the risk of making a poor buying decision is pretty low. I didn't like those sneakers. So I'm going to, you know, get another pair. So I'll wear these begrudgingly, but I'm wearing this. I have used that despite procurement, kind of the other things. The success of this individual professionally depends on the team delivering, and that's important. But I think that also speaks to why, you know, talk to most firms, somewhere between 60 and 80% of their work is repeat work from repeat clients. And you mean that sort of thing. So if, if you deliver good work and you can make a reputation for yourself, I think that the buyer is more likely to keep buying from you. You know what I mean? Because, because the risk of working with somebody else, even if it's a couple dollars cheaper, is too high for their, for their career. And yeah, you know, hey, they want to get their bonus at the end of the year. Generally, they want to do all the, the same things that we want to do, right? I like to think of professional services, and that's for rough order of magnitude. The professional services are, say, 5% of the building hard costs. And then there's also a land cost and a development cost on top of that. So, the investment on a good professional service team can have outsized returns. They have a bigger impact on the overall success of the development, far more than whether they got a good buy on 5% when that 5% impacts 95% of their yeah, investment. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're spot on there. And, and, and I don't love that we're always measured, Jimine, on, on, on price, Jimine, so, so closely because the, the outcome can be so significantly different depending on, and, you know, the little bit of difference, 5% up and down or 10% that you can often, you know, sort of see in there and you're able to differentiate and still secure the the work is is a rounding error. It, it sure is. It, or, or like price volatility from when you priced flooring to when you bought flooring could be the could be the cost of all of your your engineering service. I, I, I find anytime if I feel like I'm being leverage on price, say to a, a lower bid, so to speak. It, to me, that tells me that I've done a disservice to the client that I haven't been able to convey the value of our firm to their end goals. 
Because if somebody doesn't understand the value between a firm and another firm, they go to price. They default price as the comparison. But if they understand the difference in the value, it's a totally different conversation. So to me, I'm always looking to try to convey value versus negotiate on price because that's where you end up. I call that, I've heard somebody refer to it as commodity hell. If you can't differentiate yourself, you end up competing on low price and it's not by choice. So I agree with you. I think that... You know, a, a moment ago I said, you know, hey, our clients are smart. They know what they want, that sort of thing. I, I think the other thing, though, is I think it's really challenging at times to tell one professional services firm from another. Do you mean like, hey, I'm submitting my my proposals. This one's got, you know, young lady who's got a master's in structural engineering. Oh, this firm's got, you know, a guy who's got a master's in structural engineering, too. Do you mean like so you, you're trying to go through your either your mental checklist or a formal checklist and go through there. And it's getting easier for two different firms to look very similar. It sure is. And and then it becomes, I think, more challenging for the buyer to differentiate. That to me is how an industry ends up as a relationship business. It's because it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to quantify the value between two firms. So even if you perceive a firm to be better, they're similar, maybe this one's better, are they $20,000 better? Are they $50,000 better? Are they half a million dollars better? Like you can't quantify better. Better is really hard to quantify. And I think that's what happens. And that's why you have to, it becomes a relationship business. You're, I agree with you completely. You know what I mean? On that, I think that on the projects when you can capture the difference. Yes. It's so valuable. Need to capture that difference. Hold on to that and then make sure everybody understands it. Be it a developer, be it an owner, be it a project manager, you know, running multiple projects in a program or what have you. It's, am I getting more value for my money through quality? Can you help us expedite the schedule? You know, all these, these things at the same, at the same price. Can he, and now a lot of times it's just de-risking, you know, situations. You might not be able to necessarily show that savings, but if you can identify, Hey, we, we made some key decisions along the way that de-risked this project and it was delivered on time, on schedule you know, no change notices and that sort of stuff. That that can be a win. For for a more experienced buyer, we'll hear that and go, you know, hey, that's that's good performance. Let's go back to the beginning. You ended up in the engineering industry. Did you study engineering in college? Oh, that's funny. I went to school with the idea of being a German speaking automotive engineer. German speaking automotive engineer. That, that was, was my goal. plan. It's pretty specific, right? So I grew up, I, I loved cars and how am I going to get in this? And I did quite well with German in high school. And, you know, my, my teacher was like, Hey, you should consider, continue this into college and, you know, get a minor and you plus it'll help your, you know, your GPA um, thing. And despite having a, a, a great college roommate who was um, a math major, as the further we got, the deeper we sort of got into the classwork is I just couldn't do the math. And one part, you know, maybe undiagnosed ADHD. Another part, you know, I'm not sure if all the medication was going to help me. You know, you sort of, sort of drive through with having a... You just weren't drawn to the math. You, you, a great, you know, that sort of stuff. And and in my mind, it was that if, if I couldn't do the math, you know, I mean, I was a washout instead of just, you know, should I put my head down and just not got great grades and sort of went through. Anyways, long story short is um, my dad had some great advice. He's like, I know this isn't exactly how you saw things playing out, but you know, you haven't even been dealt your hand yet, you know, to sort of play your game of life yet. So don't think that this is sort of the last card. He's like, figure out how to get a degree to make the most of, you know, sort of where you, where you are and get out. So I pivoted and I, you know, got a teaching certificate to go along and I taught chemistry and German at East Lansing High School. So I did my student teaching. And in the second term, I picked up some German classes as the teacher there took some took some time off. And I enjoyed it. So I, I grew up running and I was, you know, I was going to be a track coach and I'll figure out something to do on the summer and that sort of stuff. And that's, you know, as we talked about earlier, then I got that call from my dad. And it's, I, I don't think it's a surprise to me that I was drawn to the industry because I've always really liked that. I like the problem solving. I love the complex nature of things. Like I love to do the deep dive. I love to read the articles that are mentioned in footnotes and, you know, sort of those sorts of things. And I think the other thing is I just, I have such a, a respect for the practitioners that can take the math and create 
these incredible things in the built environment that they do. I mean, and I, yeah, I see a lot of that, you know, sort of stuff. So it's not the path that I, you know, expected, but I remember when I, I got the call from Morrison Hirschfield about interviewing, you know, with them, I'd been working for a cell phone tower company who was looking at sort of like a real estate play, buying these, running the space out on them. And I told him, like, you know, that my background is like project management, running operations and that sort of stuff and seeing that I'm not sure if I'm the, you know, the best fit. And I remember him, him saying, is he's like, we've got a lot of guys over here. Genevieve, they're like me. We could use maybe a few more people who are, you know, by this point had the experience working in a few different con- countries, working with larger teams, going that sort of stuff. So it's just, it's been a good, it's been a good fit. That's a pretty cool balance. And I'm interested in this land consulting business. So were, was there a land consulting business that was focused on everything and then just kind of saw this opportunity with the cell network expansion? It, it, was that like a big pivotal moment in that company's but history? Yeah. So my, my dad was our county planning director. You know I mean? I grew up in this great little small town in, in Michigan, you know, a couple thousand people. And my mom and dad would, you know, walk to work and mom worked across the street for a village. And my dad worked for the county, you know, I me mean, in the county scene, that sort of stuff. So, you know, that was an experience, but they had reduced. And so he had sort of gotten moved out of that, you know, position and he just hung out his own shingle. And then as the cell phone companies came around and were looking to build the towers at the time, most zoning ordinances didn't address this in any specific area. Maybe they talked about radio towers, but they certainly didn't talk about this. So if you're trying to rapidly build, who who better to help you figure out and navigate the way through to get these permits than the type of person who used to write these you know, ordinances. And my dad was a consultant before he worked for the county and he would write these, you know, sort of zoning ordinances and that sort of stuff. So I think it was a, a really good fit. He had the right relationships. Yeah, he had it all. Yeah. And he was kind of, he was a problem solver too, you know, so you're going into a community and, you know, you've got a dozen different jurisdictions, you know what I mean? And some of them you can go ahead and get things. Other times it's going to be, you know, engagement. He was really good on the public hearing yeah, the public engagement, you know, type type of thing. I, I applaud the entrepreneur in him. Like that's seizing opportunity and ident- identifying opportunity, and then and then taking initiative to to kind of hang that shingle and make it happen. Yeah, it was really interesting, and he, and he had you know he had a good run. He never he had a few employees, but he never really sort of captured and scaled. I think there were some other you know firms that sort of saw the opportunity. And really, you know, sort of threw all the capital behind it and really grabbed and scaled and what have you. But he had a neat little, you know, he had a neat little practice. And over time, he did do, you know, kind of other things. But for a while, you know, that industry was going. They were spending a lot of money. They're going as fast as they can. Scott, in that business, did you wear all the hats? You were helping on all angles of the business because you expanded from more than just Michigan. Yeah. So, so when I was with him, we worked in Iowa together. And then, you know, interesting is, is I got offered a role with the company, which is now T-Mobile, was Western Wireless at the time. And, and you know, maybe my dad and I had a good working relationship, but, you know, working with your father has its, has its pros and cons. Has its pros know, and cons, thing. yep. So, you know, I was going to say, it's, it was interesting is my dad sort of gave me view into everything in the business that I asked for. I didn't necessarily really know, I would say always what to, what to ask, you know, sort of thing. So I got to know that, you know, those parts of the business and that sort of stuff. I think the greater thing though, that he did for me was, is I had work to do and I helped like write a database that there was so much paper sort of capturing that sort of stuff is that he let me live at that office and gave me a lot of flexibility, Jimmy, in my work schedule that allowed me to learn all these other areas of the business. And then, you know, it's, it's most dads did is I had an opportunity to join the company and then they had plans to send me to Seattle. And I, you know, at the time there weren't many cell phone networks that had been constructed, much less somebody my age, fresh out of school that had sort of done everything. And I think that he saw that as a better opportunity for me. And so I, you know, kind of jumped at that. And this industry took you to Seattle and then international. Yeah. And one of the, one of the folks that I, I had worked with called and, and he was setting up a, an organization that was working for Nokia in Europe. And he was like, Hey, you know, you're doing what you're doing now, but could you project manage? Yeah. You speak German, right? Yeah. And so that, that was a big, like a little bit of a secret of my success over there is I had this opportunity to go overseas. I'm the youngest person on the team and I spoke German. So as you sort of identified the subcontractors that were going to work with everybody, if you will, in some respects, I kind of got last pick because if you didn't speak 
if the contractor didn't speak English, it wasn't going to work well. And I say the contractor, there was a acquisition contractor, a design contractor, you know, construction, what have you. And so I ended up working with these individuals whose English wasn't that great, but that didn't mean they weren't high performers. It just meant that the English wasn't that great. And so, so much of your success as a team was working with, you know, kind of the locals. And I think that speaking language went a long way with me, maybe not being as much of the ugly American, you know, as we're often perceived to do. But I also had some individuals that worked really hard. And I was like, hey, you guys send the stuff in. I'll take care of the paperwork and, you know, that sort of stuff. You guys just go do the, go do your stuff. A, a close friend of mine in, in a parallel story, he went to race motorcycles in Italy. And he doesn't speak Italian. He, he was racing dirt bikes. And the people around him spoke English as like having like a friendly conversation, but they don't know the English word for like carburetor or like tuning an engine. So the, the details of like working and tuning a dirt bike to like compare to improve the performance of the machine was a really challenging hurdle for him. It was kind of an interesting thing that you don't think about until you're in the situation and you being able to speak German is pretty great. Yeah, it's for sure. But on the flip side, I was on the side where, you know, I'd say by the end, my German was, was pretty good conversationally. My written has always been passable. You know what I mean? Thank goodness you're sort of working in an engineering construction thing. So they're not that focused on the punctuation. You blended but right in. Yeah, but, yeah, that's exactly right. but, but, but I knew maybe four to six different ways to say something. Whereas, you know, in your, in your mother tongue, you know, dozens of ways to sort of articulate. So I could listen and tell based on the words that were chosen. You know I mean, your, your ability to hear and understand is typically significantly better than your ability to sort of communicate back verbally. So I was really able to understand, you know, hey, if we were waiting on a lease or we were talking to a, a landlord or something like that, just based on how it was communicated. Yeah, we've got a good chance of closing, closing this one or no, this person's being a little bit evasive. We're going to need to go find another candidate. Do you know what I mean? To go, you know, sort of, sort of thing. So that definitely helped. Allowing someone to speak in their mother tongue, I think, I think was a big, a big part of, you know, that back to your comment there about that, the motorcyclist. Yeah. Coming into, I guess I want to get a sense of scale of this operation. So Seattle to Austria, Germany, I think this eventually brought you, this is what landed you in Canada. Um, what was the sense of scale of this organization? So, man, that's a great question. I think that, you know, like I'd say we were building like, you know, kind of a 100 cell sites, I think, in Des Moines. And there was probably 300 in Seattle. And what what's the time frame for something like that in this industry? Is that like in a calendar year and three years? Within the year, yeah. You're trying to get launched. So at the time, the, the licenses had been purchased and you had, you, you know, there was time for the license holders. But a lot of times it's part of the license purchasing requirement was is you had to get service. And and that, yeah, it's not the same. That was one of the neatest things is you would show up in a community and there's no cell phone service. And when you leave, you're you're having telephone conversations. Yeah. You know I mean, you're testing it right off. Help, yeah, it's amazing. You know, I mean, it's like magic sort of thing. I think that, you know, similarly, Switzerland over the course of the time we were, we were there, you know, it was maybe several hundred, you know, a few hundred, several hundred sites. And you're working direct for T-Mobile and Nokia or the former who, are, who is now T-Mobile. So are you, are you hiring? Are you finding all the land? Are you hiring the people that bring the plots of land and then manage construction? Like what is your actual role in the development and construction of the tower? So you've got uh, network engineers that are going to lay out, you know, the network. And it's hard to believe now because we're just filling in gaps. You know, those you drop one on the highway or, you know, you go to the beach and you still can't, you know, get service in the bar or something like that. Yeah. Something like that's my house. Yeah. Yeah. There was no, but time there was <laughs> nothing. like 45 minutes outside of 40 minutes outside of downtown Boston. I don't have service yeah, in my house. Yeah. I like that though, for those that still work, that's job security for those that are in that, you know, that are still in that industry. But the network planners would plan where the cell site's going to go and they would issue what's called a search rate. So there's a circle on a map and, you know, in downtown Zurich, it might be a couple of city blocks as you move out into the countryside. It's, it's sort of, you know, larger. And then you start fitting all these pieces together as, you know, there's a contractor who's leasing and sometimes that same contractor's permitting. And then you've got a different contractor that's doing the design work. And then you've got build contractors, Jimmy, that are coming in. And remember at the time, there wasn't a lot of experience, you know what I mean, kind of in this. And then to some extent, there's a lot of similarities, but each one of these has to be adapted 
you know what I mean, for the particular, you know, location. And certainly if, if you're in historical downtown Zurich, you're not building a tower, do you know what I mean? You're having to put antennas up and they're going to be hidden and it's around the corner and it, you know what I mean? So some of these are camouflage sites, which are, you know, expensive, but it's just, it's, you know, you and I have talked about this before. It's just really challenging problem solving and your problem solving is absolutely quickly as you can. And you're sort of bringing in all these different ideas from all these other professionals. You got to, you know, blend it together. And, and every one of these sites is a little bit different, you know, but you have to build against consistency and then the site has to work, has to function, you know, kind of all these things. So the beauty of this business is regardless of the hurdles, and obviously you you target highly populated areas, I would say first, because the return on the investment of creating the cell tower or the camouflaged cell service in, in downtown Zurich is how many people do you now get to sell uh, cell phone <laughs> subscriptions to, right? How many annual fees? What are you going to be able to collect from that population around that tower? And that makes it a very fundable and predictable revenue model that I think gives that type of industry a lot of leverage. I learned a similar, I think Teledyne was the name of the cable company. There's this, what is the, I'm going to draw a blank on the book, but it, it was written about six or eight unconventional CEOs and their unconventional returns. And one of them was Teledyne. And this was the book that helped me understand a business model that wasn't profitable. And this is a little side story, but I think it's super valuable and it relates to this industry. And this is where share value really comes to play. And if you make profit, you have to pay taxes. So if you have a business that has like virtually unlimited scalability and predictability, like a cable business, they knew they had to spend X number of dollars to bring cable service into a new town or a new like suburb of a city. And they could predict how long that was going to take and how much, how many people they were going to bring on onto the cable paying that annual subscription. So the predict, you could borrow against that. It's very predictable on the future share value. And it's in their best interest to not pay profit because if they have to pay, say, 40% tax, that's 40% less money they have to invest in getting into the next region. So they made virtually no profit for like 10 plus years, but their shareholder value went through the roof, which isn't a tax taxable gain. And I thought it was like an absolutely brilliant revenue model. The, the, the thing that's interesting about the, the early days of that construction sort of everywhere was it was almost like a gold rush. So the race was to get a network up as quickly as possible so that you could capture the clients. And, you know, the handsets are subsidized and that sort of stuff. So you, there's a stickiness. I mean, like the switching cost were more, were more challenging then than they are now. You know, you got a, you got a SIM card and a telephone number and the telephone number is tied to. So if you wanted to switch, you had to get it. You know what I mean? So there were all these, these sort of hurdles there, but the money that was being thrown at, you know, these initial builds is eye popping compared to, you know, compared to now. Yeah, it was a, it was just a race. So yeah, you can see how that entire business had a lot of money thrown at it. That was probably like the venture capital of its time. <laughs> That's right. And there was, there's, yeah, there was a lot of capital that was, that was, you know, thrown at that. And, and costs were higher. You know what I mean? Like, like cell phone costs have done nothing but go down. Do you mean over, over time? That's probably one of the areas where, you know, you're getting more value for money. You're getting, you know, you used to pay for text messages. You used to, you know, if you had internet on your phone, oh my goodness, data costs, you know, those sorts of, it's almost like the landline phones were used to pay for long distance, you know, long distance calls. Yeah. The book I referenced, The Outsiders by William Thorndike, really good read. And this is going beyond marketing sales. This is just good business conversation. This industry takes you to Canada and the unfortunate 9-11 event happens. And that dried up your funding, it seems. So it, it kind of prompted a career change. Yeah. So the, the, the tower company that I was working with, we were trying to purchase, you know, one of the tower portfolios from one of the incumbent carriers. Like that's the model. And then, you know, you sort of turn it into an apartment. You know what I mean? And there's spaces on the, the tower that you that you rent out. And yeah, I mean, like didn't get a deal, didn't get a deal done and capital started to dry out. So most of the guys moved back to the U.S. By this point, my wife was working and I'd been working pretty hard. You know what I mean? Up to that, up to that point for years. And so my plan was to just take, you know, some time off. I remember we, we bought this loft in downtown Calgary and I was going to, you know, put the flooring in and work on some cabinets and kind of do that some sort of stuff when, when Morrison Hershfield called and, and, and they called. And they were like, hey, we're pursuing this big project in, in Alberta called the Supernet, which was like a rural broadband 
So Alberta has you know, sort of a re- resource-based economy. They had this rainy day fund and they were looking at building fiber through most of the areas. But as you get into the more rural areas, especially in a mountainous area, you know, rock and that sort of stuff, fiber gets really, really expensive very quickly. And there were some other communities, First Nation communities way up north that are sort of like fly-in only or winter road access, you know, kind of only communities. So anyways, long story short is I came on and we wrote a great proposal for that, which I had some previous experience, not only with my dad's company, but each one of those cell phone network jobs, you mean that you got, you're putting a proposal together to you sort of secure the work. And we got that. And so that was a lot of fun. I mean, I think the, the other fun thing about you know, sort of building these networks before there was any of this stuff is you really got to know the communities, the cities that you're that you're in in a way that, you know, few people, you certainly don't get to do that if you're a tourist, even if you're living in these, you know, areas, you're up on these rooftops, you're, you know, on mountaintops looking out and that sort of thing and sort of getting out and around was a lot of fun. And then I remember is that, and that project went, you know, really well, great team, great, great client that we were, that we were working with. I remember as that started to sort of trail down, I remember getting called and they're like, hey, we got to get going on sales. And I had never really like, I had helped on sort of proposals and those sort of things, but hadn't really internalized that. And I remember our- You didn't recognize it as like one of your responsibilities. Well, as a responsibility. And when, and if you're on a multi-year project as project manager, you're good for, you know, you're kind of good for a while. And I, I always joke that while well, back up, I would say our, our CEO at the time, Ron Wilson, used to say that professional service is easy business. You're either selling bread or you're baking bread. And you want to, you want to sell the bread faster than you can bake the bread, but you don't want to sell it too fast. You know, <laughs> that you can't, that you kind of can't keep up. And, and then I would joke with the guys is that time, I think I spent $20 on my haircut and a bunch of the guys were only spending 10. So they decided that I needed to do, learn to do business development. <laughs> And sometimes that's the difference, right? Is, is, is a $20 haircut and a willingness to go embarrass yourself in front of clients as you figure this out. And I think just over time. Put yourself out there. You learn by doing. Yeah. You learn by doing. I think, I think, you know, the other thing too is our industry, I think is unique and that it really leverages the seller doer model. Yes. That's a good pivot. Like architecture engineering is known for seller doer model. Seller doer model. And I, I think that you, to be correct, to, to be really credible, it's not to say that you can't use individuals or other tactics to get the door open or create the, the warm lead. Marketing, absolutely. You know, business development as you're kind of moving into some other markets. But for, I think a lot of the work that we do, I'm going to say maybe smaller projects, you know, kind of under a million dollars, the client really wants to know and meet the people that they're going to work with. And, and you need to be able to articulate that you've done this work before and not just, you know, once and that sort of thing. So I think that project managers, you know what I mean, are, they don't have to be highly polished, quite, quite the contrary. I think that being practical and real and client focused actually wins, wins more so than being, you know, being slick in a convertible. You're not supposed to be a polished salesperson. You're the, you're the, you're a doer, right? You're the doer and that you can have a lot of success. And, you know, we, we talked earlier about those firms that figure out a way to kind of ladder up. I think the firms that are successful there and empower and support individuals and teams that can can identify those right accounts, work with those accounts, do good work, and then continue to do good work. And then somebody else goes and grabs another one, you know, another account. And it sounds easy when you just say that, but it's it's challenging, right? And then you're growing and you're bringing new staff on and you're training them up. And they need to be provided a an environment where they can learn, but there's a safety net underneath them. You have a cool experience. I, I think diving into land consulting to cell towers, the networks, as I, you were explaining, like what you were doing in the volume, it immediately connected to the cable company. It's like you need to have a distribution network and it's super high CapEx. But once it's set, it's like a money tree. Yes. So you just dump as much money as you freaking can to grab as fast as you your can. land. It's essentially yep. like if you think about it, why land is so valuable, especially like in high urban cities, is you can't create more land. And then all of a sudden, cable electricity comes out before cable comes out, then remote cell towers comes out and that distribution. Like it's almost like you get to revalue that land in a different way. It's not getting access to land, but it's servicing the people in this geographic region. So it's like a new opportunity to run out there and grab land capture that sets your financial future. So it's interesting is we would often hear when we were doing that back in the day that the location is very important 
like McDonald's. And so this was 30 years ago. But if you take a look at McDonald's, they're on the right corner and they're on the right side of the right corner. You know what I mean? And so we would hear, hey, if this network's really going to perform and we're giving you these circles, you know what I mean? These, these search rings, which overlapped a little bit, we need to be as close to the middle as we can. Like the dot we put on the middle is the optimal location to put these cell phone antennas to cover the area. If you're off by a few blocks, you miss X number of population. Yep, you're missing people and that sort of stuff. And so it's like this jigsaw puzzle, but the edges of the pieces haven't been defined yet. Do you know what I mean? So you're putting, you're sort of putting these things together and then, you know, stuff we haven't covered is. And then technology improves and increases your reach, I'm sure. hundred percent. Right. And then, and then better penetration, you do all this sort of stuff. And then like, in addition to nerding out on the, on the data, you know, my dad was a, I'd say cartographer is a hobbyist. And so I never created maps, but I love maps and everything that you're doing in terms of cell phone network is it's mapping, right? You know, I remember when we went into we were went into Austria, our backs were against the wall. We didn't know that when we jumped in. We got there and they're like, you guys have 30 days to get a hundred leases signed and permitted, which sounds impossible. And I was working in the mountainous in the mountainous areas. And if you looked at the map and you think about this, it makes a lot of sense. Every valley had the same thing. It had a road, it had a river, it had railroad tracks, and it had a power line. So it made it really easy to go to all four of those groups and say, hey, are you interested in doing a master agreement, master services agreement with this, you know, master leasing agreement with us? And the power company did. But all, you know what I mean? Like there's all these great stories that I think that maps, you know, that maps tell. And if you really look over time, you can see the story of development, you know what I mean? And some of those, some of those types of things. I think that, that plays in real estate development for sure. And like these urban areas, it's like, it sometimes it helps to take the bird's eye view of the city to think about where can the city grow? Where's it going to go? Where's it going to grow? Yep. And then you backfill, you verify with data. I hadn't thought about this until I, I sent you this stuff is that I think one of the things that I'm enjoying right now, you know, sort of learning about artificial intelligence and how you apply that is like, I really enjoyed being on the forefront of technology with the cell phone networks. And it's new in front and how are we going to use this and how do you build it and how do you scale it? How do you integrate it? You know, and do those sorts of things and then optimize, right? I think that's similar here, whereas I'm just really fascinated at these new new technologies or new opportunities that that don't have a well-worn path. Figuring out the path. That's that's the entrepreneurial journey right there. Quick break from the show. Thanks for tuning in to Design Development. We're trying to help as many people as possible. So if you could subscribe and leave a review on today's episode on whatever platform you're listening, it would be a great help. It's the only way we're going to reach more people. Let's get back to the show. Let's take your experience at Morris and Hirschfield as a way to like kind of frame this conversation. So for a sense of scale, you were there for 20 years. You started as a project manager, moved up to principal, vice president. You led marketing and sales. Could you give us a sense of scale of Morris and Hirschfield? So firms about a thousand, you know, employees, just under 25 offices across, you know, North America. And it's offering both vertical and horizontal, both consulting and, you know, engineering, roads, bridges, highways, buildings, specialty buildings, data center, telecom, environmental. And you mentioned a thousand people before. And then so let's talk about the growth. Let's say, I don't know, over the last 10 years when you were running marketing and sales about like, were you in a growth phase then? Did, did you grow from what size were you, I, I guess, 10 years during that? Yeah, I was going to say, so I, our growth was was sort of between, I'd say, 5 and 10% a year. And that was the, the organization's focus. So in, employee-owned firm, 76, you know, years uh, in business, maybe 77 now. But the I'll take now as a perfect example. If you're in the U.S. and you're in the horizontal space with the infrastructure dollars that are coming through, there's probably more work out there than many organizations can can deliver. You know, so sometimes it's it's easy to get it. I don't want to say it's easy, but sometimes it's easier to get the work in if you get a good reputation, but you're only as good as the last you know project that you. It's definitely seasonal. Yeah, yeah, it's seasonal. And so the 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 goal at the time was sort of organic growth. And then I used to always say, we're looking for the, the right clients that are looking to buy, you know, the right type of services in the right place. You know I mean, the, the, the perfect type of project that's aligned with the type of stuff that we do. And, you know, we're aligned culturally with what the client's looking to buy in that, that sort of thing. The firm did one acquisition in that, in that period, a data center engineering firm did, did one. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of, 
uh, opinions on, you know, do you grow organically? Do you grow through, you know, acquisitions and some, you know, those sorts of things? There's different strategies. I think both. I think, that there's, I think that there's different strategies, but, but we had identified data centers as a, as a growth area with one of our strategic plans. And we had done this gap analysis on where we were and where we wanted to go. And to get there was going to be really challenging to do organically. Just the nature of that work at the time, I think still highly specialized, high pressure, you know, thousand dollars square foot construction prices. You know what I mean? Like, like the stakes are, are pretty high there. And, um, the firm found a, you know, a, um, a good partner that together, you know, looked pretty good. And, and from there helped the firm really kind of move into the area. And, and I want to pivot that around too, because I don't want to give the impression that it's just, Hey, we want to do, we, Hey, we're a firm and we want to do X, Y, and Z. If you're really paying attention to a market that you want to move into and you're listening, the clients will tell you what you need to have. And, and so that's what I'm saying. Like when we, when we looked at that sort of gap analysis and knew where we were, where we knew we were ready to go, the, the clients in the market were, were kind of communicating. This is where you need to be. And here's the, you know, and you did your market. research to back up the, the intuition from conversations with clients. So something interesting there with the acquisition approach, we've talked about it a couple of times in today's conversation is you need to demonstrate an experience in the sector to be able to sell it efficiently, you can buy that as well. So buying a company that's well based in a market that you want to be in helps accelerate that sales cycle. Not to mention you get a, the book of work, the, the team to do it and a brand alongside it. So that, that to me is a, that's a good acquisition. Yeah. And I, and I, I like your, you know, your, your comment on the data, like as, as you figured out and, and some of the other stuff that, that, uh, we've worked on together, the data tells us you know, it, it can inform your decision making if you're unsure, and then it can verify the decisions that you've that you've made. And then, on the, you know, on the other hand, too, I don't I don't want to become at the mercy of the data. Sometimes you might just choose to go a different direction than, you know, sort of what the, the data is doing or maybe the data is incomplete or that sort of thing, but can really learn a lot. Yeah, it's a feedback loop. Through that data, through the through the through the information, yeah. So, thousand person company leading marketing sales. What does a marketing and sales team look like? From number of people, this, how does that team function on a thousand thousand person company? So, I I don't know if if this is unique, but I think that that from my standpoint, it was unique in that we sort of had three different sales methods in addition to the marketing team. So there were more consultative offerings. And that fit well with the seller doer model and also financially worked with that. And, you know, I think we had a couple hundred seller doers, you know, in there. I couldn't, I can't give you an exact number in there. And when I say that PM level or associate department managers that are selling as the nature, senior technical people, intermediate technical people, you know, that sort of stuff. We had a strategic account approach. And so for certain, I'm going to say multidisciplinary, multi geography clients, where you're servicing not just sort of locally across there, and especially in ones where we might be assisting with them develop delivering a program. So not one project, you know, a number of, of projects. We had a strategic account approach. And that again was not necessarily just sales. You know, there'd be different members on the team wearing different, you know, kind of different hats. You could even engage somebody from accounting to make sure that all of our invoices that are going over are on the right day. They have the right information, you know, sort of those sorts of things. There's somebody who's, you know, looking at There's far too many companies that skip that step in accounting. And I think it's super critical. That's how you make sure you get paid. And you don't want to give them a reason to bounce your, you know, bounce your, your invoice back to you. And then that's frustrating for their accounting team, for their PM, you know, that sort of stuff. You know, there's project managers, but you would, you know, sort of the old zipper. And that's not my original thing, but the old zipper approach where you try to connect with a client at multiple levels across multiple geographies. And so that was really kind of a team approach. And then there, there certainly were offerings where it's, a long sales cycle or ones that were more conducive to a full-time business development person, you know, kind of being in there and opening doors and kind of doing some of that sort of stuff where we did have a small number of it. I mean, maybe there were seven or eight full-time business development, you know, people in a Seven or eight business development. And then the other sectors were more seller doers. Yeah. Or some, some hybrid of that, you know, with billable hour, you know, requirements. And here's the thing is like, even the people who are full-time business development, oftentimes, you know, once, once you've sold the, the project, you're still servicing 
Jimmy and the client. You You're know, making so. sure they're having a good experience to make do on what you what you sold them, right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And and oftentimes those individuals, you know, are technical in nature, you know, those sorts of things. So they may have discovered things during the sales process that needs to be communicated back into the team to ensure that we deliver. And then marketing was six was sort of like six, you know, individuals and I had a, you know, sort of two different ways you can do that is you can have, try to train generalists that are good at social media and, you know, creation, doing, you know, all that sort of stuff where you can have specialists. And I like the, the generalist, you know, what I mean, sort of approach. And I think that it provided the individuals more variety. And certainly there were individuals that gravitated to some things more than, you know, more than others. There's one person who really liked the online presence. So that person ended up being the web, you know, sort of person. And then, and then one of those individuals was more of an IT person. So we, you know, back to, I think the comment I said before is when I realized that none of us, you know, is doing sales because that's why we went to college to do sales is we started tracking everything from a data standpoint, just trying to figure out, Hey, is this the right thing to pursue? You know, and not just do the old go, no go based on, you know, do we know about this in advance? Do we know the client? Do we know that they, you know, there's all these, these sorts of, you know, things that you can pull and then at some point, if you're in a good state, you've got more opportunities to pursue than you have resources. You want to put, you know, is this client aligned with us? Is their work aligned with us? Is it an ongoing? What's the share of all? What's the, you know. It's a powerful position to be in. How did you uh, align? If you had, I think you said maybe over 100 seller doers across the company, you're 25 offices, North America, maybe another country. How do you align the messaging and the sales, like how a seller doer is communicating with their client? Do you leave it up to them to try to understand what the company is doing? Do you create a playbook? Do you have scripts? Do you train Do you train them? How yes. Do you do All the things. That you just, you know, I mean, that you say it's all, all the things. So it's like, that's the, that's the coming together sort of the people process technology piece. And I think that on, on the people, maybe a little bit, you got to meet them where they are. So there's groups that, that got this down. Scott, thanks for calling. We're good. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't, we yeah, don't, get out we don't need a lot of help, you know, <laughs> we'll call you when we need some brochures updated, you know, it's, it's some of those sorts of things or some additional interview support or something like that. And then there's other groups that need it. And then, you know, like we would offer similar services in different geographies and, you know, your, your comment about different cycles made me think about this, you know, things could be doing great in Toronto and maybe things in Atlanta were slow or vice versa, you know, for, for some reason. So there was always you know, kind of opportunity there, but we tried to create, everybody knew the approach, everybody knew the system. So they sort of be trained on that. We had templates, tried implementing automation and I would take partial automation over full automation. You know, maybe you get 80% of the benefit, but getting that last 20% was going to be either really expensive or really painful. So, you know, hey, take as you go and know that technology is going to keep improving and you kind of move that along. And then you got to give the individuals a lot of leeway to sell the way that they think is best to sell and to service their clients the best way. They you got to read the client. Yeah. And, and you know, when we, we didn't talk about this, we, we implemented like a net promoter score system. Was that valuable? And, I mean, incredibly valuable. And, and, you know, I think something interesting is kudos to the, to the leadership of the organization. When we first went to put that in, naturally there's some project managers that are a little hesitant. Um, and we sent out a, the survey request shortly after the invoice went out. So a client could get 12 in a year if they get 12 invoices, but we never, you know, hit them with multiple invoices in the same 30 day period, you know, sort of thing. And some clients were great about responding. Other folks are like, Hey, take me off the list, but that's no different than, you know, kind of anything else. But the interesting is like the employees were concerned. A lot of the project manager were concerned. Hey, you're checking up on me. How's this going to reflect on my year end and that sort of stuff. And I forget, you know, how much time, but for, for a period of time at the beginning, we got the feedback and we provided it directly to the PMs. And we weren't providing management with reports. Now, if something egregious popped up, of course, we would have, you know, never had a situation like that. But I thought it was interesting to, to build the trust with those staff that hold the relationship, which is arguably, you know, the most important piece of that. It was really important that we built the trust with them that this system was going to benefit them and that they were going to get feedback in kind of real time. Too. And I remember one of the first, one of the first pieces of feedback we got, you know, sort of like, I guess there was like, Hey, you guys did a pretty good job, but I never really got on that well, you mean, with the project manager. And that would have been an easy thing to fix. 
at the beginning and the client could have had a different and it has nothing to do with, you know, sometimes personalities work and sometimes they don't it has absolutely nothing. to I do. I think with that's actually often work. overlooked. I think as a manager of leadership, you want to try to connect personalities from your management team to your client team. You want to match the personality. But it's interesting that we, we the, the firm was able to really rally around that sort of net promoter score. And, and, you know, you're trying to deliver a good client experience, but it's really hard to measure that. And I, listen, there's a lot of different ways to go out there and do that. The net promoter score has its pros and cons, and maybe it's over, you know, simplified, but it is, it is okay to rally around. Hey, you, you did a great job. And sharing that information is just as important as identifying when things aren't going well, you know, and then the, and then the other, you know, same thing about the net promoter score is you, you've got these neutrals. You know what I mean? Seven and eight that's in the middle. You can rally around that. Hey, these folks are neutral. What can we do to move <laughs> yeah, them well, up? What would make this a nine? Yeah. To a nine to a nine or ten, right? I actually love the question. Could you rate something on one to ten, but you can't say seven? Yeah. Right? It's like eight's pretty good. Six isn't great. Seven, you're like threading the line. So you take away seven and you get a better result. <laughs> and then and then I was gonna say and the, and the other piece I'll give on there, which I think was was really interesting and I think is indicative of the problem solving nature of our industry, is that if someone would get negative feedback, they typically weren't that surprised by it. Maybe they didn't fully understand the extent, right? But they're they're good in terms of engaging with clients and kind of that sort of stuff. And then it never ceased to really, I shouldn't say surprise me, but but I was excited to see is that they always fi- finished on the high note. Like things might be bumpy in the middle or they might've gotten some negative you know, feedback along the way, but then the whole team would come together. Okay, hey, we need to fix this and not just deliver on the project, fix an issue, you know what I mean, that sort of stuff. And they would often, if you, you know, you, you might have some bumps in the middle of the project, but that constant feedback gives you an opportunity to finish on a finish on that you know on that high note the monthly cadence to that is pretty in, the, the monthly cadence to the feedback if it makes it kind of uh, painless and easy for them to do i think makes it a great tool I, i've never thought about this. it in that way i think the monthly feedback is great but i could see how some clients don't want it but it's also an easy way for them to kind of measure the experience throughout the entire relationship which is valuable and, 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 and you can also say, hey, ignore this unless something's going really great or something's not going great. I can take you off the list if you don't want to, you know, you, you decide what you want, but that feedback's important to us. And so if it's okay with you, this is going to be in front of you. And at any point, click and tell us how we're, how we're doing. How many proposals a year do you create in like a thousand person company? I imagine that in itself is hard to manage. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big number. It was thousands. You know, so the firm would do 5,000 projects a year and it had a great win rate. So you can probably figure out, you know, what that number is in terms of overall, how many proposals would go out. And they would range from small, you know, maybe you're doing a building envelope condition assessment, which is, you know, under $5,000, you know, initial sort of thing up to multi-year million dollar, you know, significant infrastructure, road, highway, bridge projects and everything in between from small lump sum to large you know, time and materials. How, how do you, how do you manage that? How did you, how did you manage pricing across the company? Did you change pricing from region to region? Like do you automate and leverage software? What kind of, what goes into managing? That? So I would say that you're, you're always at different stages of sophistication, depending on whether it's a old offering that you've done for a while where you've got a lot of data versus maybe a new offering where you don't have as much data or one that you're providing locally versus or, and then you know that there's sometimes there's projects that really don't have a, a benchmark. So we, we would certainly mine past project proposal data and then also look at delivery, you know, information, which is really, which is really helpful. You know, one that, that I would advocate on is looking at your backlog and looking at your funnel and then helping that to inform your, your pricing decision as well. You know, if you've got a lot of backlog and you've got, you know, a big funnel and maybe these are small projects, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for you to move your number up a little bit and and capture that. Or sometimes you take a look and you go, hey, in order for us to deliver on this, there's going to be overtime on the team. Well, I think that you should capture that, you know, type of thing. So see, there's a lot of variability, you know, in there. We tried providing different types of tools depending on the business. And there were certainly plenty of individuals who sort of created their, I say created their own, not in a bad way, but, you know, the way that they like to work 
they might pull some, you know, pull some information in and, and do that. We mine our pricing information as well. We have done it for years. One thing that I don't want to call it, say disheartening, but maybe it is a little disheartening is how outdated, how, how fast pricing gets outdated based on like the changing market conditions. It's like our data that we were collecting in 2019, 2020 isn't really that informative anymore based on company growth, market conditions, market positioning, inflation. But we do, we mine all that data and it does help improve your judgment. But then we're kind of looking at smaller pockets for informing our current day pricing and execution feedback, right? Like how, how well did we do on past projects? Where did you mine your pricing data? So we would we would mine that out of our CRM, you know, system, and then we would we would also then confirm that with delivery, you know. So you sort of have a net net labor multiplier or a fee to salary ratio or you know whatever the the firm's using, you know, whatever your multiplier terminology is, or whether you're just looking at gross margin or something like that. But what's the project supposed to be delivering at? And then what do you what's it delivered at? And and sometimes, and the reason I think it's important to look at both of those is sometimes is you went in with some assumptions. And I think that, you know, my old firm, we would connect with, you know, there's a project manager who's involved in terms of, there's always two people who are looking at any proposal that goes out. And if it's on a larger, then it's more of a team and it gets vetted and, you know, kind of all those sorts of things. So you want to have multiple eyes on it. But sometimes the the job gets won and gets handed to the project manager that usually had some um, input, but maybe some conditions had changed. You know what I mean? So now here you are starting the project and the net labor multiplier isn't exactly what you thought. So at that point, you know, hey, maybe it's not what you bid it at, but it's what you registered the project at and you delivered it, you know what I mean, on time. So there can be some variability with that. I think that the other thing that I, I think you, you got to stay up to date with what the market is. I'm, I'm a big advocate, win or lose, ask for a debrief, you know, from the client. And then the, the last one is I, I, you know, we would sometimes see departments start to really see an improvement in their win rate. And you can get really excited about that. But I would often think we're leaving money on the table. So let's start to move our number up a little bit until we see a couple of, of losses and test the market. You know what I mean? So I think that I don't know. I'm not suggesting dynamic pricing like you see if you, you know, if you're on Amazon or you're buying airline tickets, you know, you're on and you look for that trip to Seattle and then you go back in 30 minutes later, all of a sudden it's jumped $60, you know, sort of thing, the, the dynamic nature of that. But I don't know that we're always testing the market that we can. And I'm not suggesting 10 or 15% jumps, but there's often, you know, a few percentage points that you can look at, but our costs are going up, you know, employees are making more money, especially we've seen in the last, you know, period of time, inflation. And I'm not sure as an industry, we've been trailing as closely as, as, as we should and taking a look at maybe some of our models and that sort of thing. What's next for you, Scott? Well, that's a good question. I'm figuring out if I'm an entrepreneur or not, I think might be the easier, you know, the, or the, the quickest response to that. So I, I started a new business, you know, Productive Pursuits. I'm learning a lot from the market right now in terms of, I think the, the offerings that I thought would be valuable versus what the markets, you know, the market will tell you what's valuable or not. So I'm, I'm learning a lot through that. I'm finding some new partnerships, but I like the, the productivity side of things. In some respects, maybe I'm back to teaching a little bit. So I'm enjoying consulting a lot. And in some respects, consulting is, you know, is teaching. So maybe I'm going back to, you know, it's maybe some of my original roots. I agree. There's correlation there. Yeah. From that standpoint. But our industry doesn't do a great job in general in sort of the sales and marketing space. And there are there are certainly firms that do do a good job. But I think that there's there's space. They're in the minority. Yeah. I think that they're in the space. And one is being more effective. And I just think that it is, to some extent, it can be formulaic. So any firm can identify, do, do a better job identifying the people that are taking part in business development activities or PM activities, put training around that. Do you have processes? Can you improve those? How are they, you know, how are you going to have those as you scale? And they don't need to be so tight that, you know, nobody wants to follow and everyone's looking for, you know, they can just be guidelines. And then we're in this neat spot right now where technology is really delivering, you know, some improvements. So part of it is, you know, back to I think none of us love putting all the hours into sales and marketing. So can you reduce the amount of time that it takes? Can you make sure that you're aligned with the light, the right clients? And is your offering, you know, one that's being. So anyways, I'm having a lot of fun exploring that with different companies. I love the data side. So I'm, I'm working with some guys who are looking at the data capture, data analytics. And then how do you how do you present that? 
And it's more quickly than I expected, sort of pulling together, not just sort of your CRM data, but also your operational data. So you can take a look at those two things, workload forecasting. I'm having a lot of fun. I'm, I'm curious, as you know, as you started a business, it's a lot of work. I think it's a little bit more, it's a lot more work than I, I expected, but I'm enjoying it. And I'm enjoying being more client facing, you know, again, and having these conversations and learning about, you know, businesses like, like yours and coming up with solutions to, you know, help them grow. That's what we're trying to do with design development. I just like learning about people's journeys and businesses and, and how they think about things. And what better way than to share that with the industry than through a podcast, right? I'm having a lot of fun. It's good. Yeah. Scott, thank you so much for sharing your journey today. Before we let you go, could you share your favorite book or podcast with our audience? Oh, geez. Okay. Podcast. You know what? I've been listening to to Pivot a lot with Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher. And in some respects, I feel like that's reading the U- like reading the USA Today. So I love reading newspapers. And the USA Today is not the heaviest lift. It's maybe like a, a, an indulgence. But anyways, I find it really interesting. There are two perspectives. And I like the, you know, they're not afraid to, to disagree. And that one's focused on like technology. And that's where that it's makes it entertaining. And then, you know, I had a client give me Love Works by Joel, Joel, Man, Joel Manby, I think. And it's talking about bringing love and respect into the workplace. And I don't know if I would have like selected that book on my own, but it was really, really interesting, really interesting read. It's not, a, it's not a long read. And I finished that, you know, over Thanksgiving. So, and it's always fun to get a book from somebody. You know, I enjoy giving books to people. I enjoy getting books from somebody, but for somebody to care enough to kind of, you know, pass one along. So I say that's that's the latest one. Very cool. And something I, I failed to ask throughout this conversation in the background here, for those listening, there is a painting of Einstein holding a baby. Could you what what's going on there? So that's my dad. That's the summer of 1946. So I don't know, he's six months old or something like that at the time. Oppenheimer, you know, has sort of brought to the forefront, you know, maybe the weight that a lot of these scientists carried by 1946 after they dropped, you know, after they dropped the bomb. And so I don't know if I'll get this exactly right, but my my grandfather and Einstein had met through some acquaintances and then summer of 1946, Einstein's looking to take some time away. And at the time, Western Maryland was somewhat rural. And he gets Deep Creek Lake where he vacationed. And my grandparents would go, you know, go sailing there, like small little, you know, sailboats, nothing big or that sort of stuff. And my grandfather was a, a chemist and he was like, you know, carpenter made these beautiful things. He held several patents. So I don't want to suggest that he was, you know, on an Einstein level, but he was a really bright guy and uh, they just got on really well. And so, you know, our family has pictures. Yeah. No different than anybody else does, you know, picnics by the lake and that sort of thing. I was just having to have, you know, Einstein in them on, on one day. And that when we renovated our house, I had a friend that wanted to sort of make us a surprise, you know, piece of art. And so he took that old photograph and then had that, that painting made, which, which, you know, means a lot. It's also nice to see dad, you know, kind of looking over. What, what a cool story. I, I don't know. I, you might be the first person I've ever met that actually had some connection back to Einstein. And that's such a cool thing. And honestly, the, the timing I, I watched Oppenheimer like last week and he's a part of that movie. So it all kind of connects, but Scott, thank you so much for sharing your story. Marketing sales. I think there's a lot of growth opportunity for, for AE firms out there that, that dive in and learn more and think about how they can connect those to their strategic initiatives. So thank you for sharing your insights and looking forward to what is in store for you in the future. Thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks friends. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Design Development. Real quick before you leave, our goal is to help as many people as possible. We're a growing community and you're a big part of it. So just click that send button, send this episode to a friend to let them get those same insights that you got today. We appreciate you. See you next time.